You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. As Jake said, we will finish our series through Genesis this morning, looking at the life of Joseph. It'll be a little bit different than some of the other messages we've had because one of the significant uh, doctrines in the Christian faith uh, is really highlighted in Joseph's life. So we're going to um, look at that through the lens of his life as well as uh, a few other things. If you've got your Bibles with you or you've got a phone with you, you want to open to the notes section in the app, go ahead and do that. We'll be uh, in Genesis chapter 45, Genesis chapter 45. I want to give you a little background, then I'm going to read 11 verses from Genesis 45. Pray for us, um, and then we'll kind of enter in and look at at this unique doctrine uh, this morning. So we follow God's covenant promises in Genesis, beginning with Abraham, through Abraham and through the, the sons of the promise, Isaac and Jacob, and now Joseph. Last week, we saw that Jacob spent a little time in character school, uh, Joseph does as well. He gets uh, sent down to Egypt and spends a good deal in character school down there. Joseph was uh, a pampered and entitled son uh, of Jacob. He was his favored son through his favored wife, Rachel, uh, had been given a, a fancy colorful robe. Uh, his brothers stayed continuously annoyed with him. Uh, and then one day, to make it worse, at breakfast, Jacob says, guess what, guys? I had a dream last night. <clears throat> it's fantastic. They said, what was it? He said, well, I, I dreamed there were all these uh, sheaves, and they were, they were bowing down to, to this other sheave, uh, and I realized what it meant. It meant that uh, all of you are going one day to bow down to me as your brother. Now, how many of you ever experienced any sibling rivalry growing up? <coughs> Yeah, and if you've got kids, you understand that this was, um, this was not sitting well with Joseph's brothers. They already didn't like him as he was favored by their father. And so they developed this scheme to kill him while he's out. They decide not to do that, but rather to sell him to a traveling caravan of foreigners that's coming through um, into slavery and then to tell their father that he'd actually been killed by a wild animal. This uh, traveling caravan takes Joseph to Egypt, and we find in Genesis chapter 39 this great phrase that God was with Joseph in Egypt. God was with Joseph in Egypt. Uh, Joseph, Joseph there finds favor in the house of a man named Potiphar, who was the uh, king of Pharaoh's guards, royal household. And so he's brought into the household and made the overseer <coughs> of the affairs of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife comes on to Joseph. Joseph uh, rejects her, and then she makes up a story about him uh, trying to assault her, and he's thrown into prison. It just can't get any better for Joseph. And then we find again the phrase that God was with Joseph in prison. Through Joseph's faithfulness and the supernatural working of God through Joseph, um, he does some things in prison that land him back in favor with Pharaoh himself. He comes out and is given largely uh, 
governmental control over the actions and the affairs of Egypt. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cough some through this morning. So try to bear with me and I'll try not to have a complete coughing fit while I'm up here. Um, so this is where we'll <clears throat> pick up in just a minute. Now, there's a famine over the land where Joseph's brothers and family had been. But because of Joseph's ability and gifting by God, his service uh, under Pharaoh in Egypt, Egypt was well prepared. Egypt had an abundance of food. And so his brothers, not knowing whether he's dead or alive, having no idea where he is or what he's doing, uh, they end up running into him. Joseph finally decides to make himself known to his brothers. And this is where we'll pick up the story. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 11. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you and your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Let's pray this morning. <coughs> Heavenly Father, open not only our minds and our ears to your word this morning, Lord, but open our hearts to believe, to receive, to submit, and to live out the truth that you revealed to us in your word. God, in this room this morning, watching online this morning, we're all in different places. God, some are carrying wounds, some are filled with joy, some are wrestling with anxiety and uncertainty. Some are submitting hopes to you, longing to see you move. Father, we know that you know this. You know who we are and where we are and what time it is in our lives. Father, we commit this time to you. and God, just pray and ask that you will be with us in a powerful and personal way. Speak to us now, God. Do not allow us to spend this time 
before you and leave unchanged. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, some of you will be familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Uh, Some of you have uh, read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Some of you have read the entire seven books that are part of the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you have seen the movie, but Lewis wrote these uh, books in the early 1950s. He started in 1950, finished in 1956, and they have been in continual publication ever since 1956, with over 100 million copies being sold in more than 47 languages. In chapter 8, close to the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the, uh, the siblings have been sent out of London because of the bombing during World War II uh, to spend time in a country home, we find this now famous passage where Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are talking to the children about Aslan, who is the, the Christ figure. He's a lion in Narnia. And little Susan says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver says, that you will, dearie. And no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. And then young Lucy says, then he isn't safe? To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. What we find highlighted in Joseph's story and through his own words is the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence. And the doctrine of of providence is the the biblical truth that God is working all things in creation, in your life, in my life, and throughout the world together toward his glorious purposes and redemptive end. That God is in charge. And it's important to remember when we uh, begin to really grasp this idea of providence and the sovereignty of God. And we realize that he's really not safe, but he is good. It's central to remember what the scripture teaches about God's character when it comes to providence. And in our world today, if you pay any attention at all, you've got to wonder at times if anyone or anything is ultimately in control. I continue to be amazed just in our own country looking at a a coming election that we could potentially, I don't think we will, but we could potentially again have a choice between two political candidates, one who will be mired in trials and multiple indictments, another one who will likely have at least one indictment or possible one indictment, and who can barely stay awake through meetings with foreign states ahead or remember the names of his own cabinet right now. And you wonder, what's to become of a nation when this seems to be the best that we can put forth. This week, Jake and I spent some time in San Diego. Outside of our hotel and a number of hotels parked uh, just on the side of the street next to a chain link fence was a couple of RVs with other cars. They're just parked there, this little encampment built of trash there. Clearly doing drugs, slumped over in the vehicles all day and all night in the morning. Finally, after three days, I couldn't stand it anymore. 
um, that along with that type of thing is running rampant in our cities all across our country as a result of political policies rooted basically in wishful thinking and fairy dust. So I called the San Diego PD's non-emergency line. <coughs> and after we went through a, a series of buttons to push this button or that button, what do you want to report and why, it finally got, I finally got through and it said all dispatchers are currently helping other callers right now. If you'll stay on the line, your call will be answered in the order it was received like I was trying to order pizza. Now, I understand. I understand on the police department side, they're overwhelmed. Uh, but as you drive around any major city outside of tourist areas or the influential financial districts, you've got to wonder what on earth is going on. If you look at the news just this last month and in May, you begin to see reports like this one, uh, both from CNN and the New York Post. Lab-grown babies could be a reality as soon as 2028. Japanese scientists have claimed they're on the cusp of growing human babies in the lab by incubating eggs and sperm in an artificial womb. Can I just say, friends, that's Tower of Babel stuff there. That's the kind of thing that I submit to you. I would not be surprised to see a kind of visitation of the judgment of God that we'd have to step back and say was on a biblical scale. Just because we figured out how to do certain things as human beings, Scripture teaches us, does not give us license always to do those things. Another headline this last week didn't actually surprise me. Um, talked about the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party has undertaken a 10-year project to rewrite the Christian Bible so that it better reflects communist values. And as you look around at, at men, women, at teenagers, students, adults, senior adults, everyone seems to be grasping to try to make sense of things, trying to grab anything that will help them. Some are grasping at politics, some are grasping at culture, some are grasping at medicine, some are grasping at this idea of excessive self-expression as a way to make sense of the world. Well, there's a, a passage that some of you are familiar with in Acts chapter 17, where the Athenians were trying to make sense of their world. And they did it through the use of philosophy and the gods. And just to make sure that they weren't leaving anything out, they even had an altar to an unknown God. Verse 22 of Acts 17 records Paul's response as he visits the Areopagus. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. For as I walk around, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. As if he needed anything, rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations 
that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What Paul is saying there and what we're going to look at from a number of different angles this morning is that there is a living and breathing personal God who has created all that is. He sustains all that is and he is in charge and in control of all that is. I think we wrestle with this. Uh, The Westminster Confession, which is now probably uh, the the most famous and most um, cited, most read and most cherished Christian confession in history, in chapter five deals with the issue of the providence of God. In section one, the authors of the Westminster Confession state this, God who created everything also upholds everything. He directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing from the greatest to the least by his completely wise and holy providence. He does so in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the voluntary, unchangeable purpose of his own will, all to the praise of the glory of his wisdom power, justice, goodness, and mercy. In other words, the author of the Westminster Confession says that behind all that is in life, all that is sustained, behind the ultimate trajectory of the universe is God himself as the primary active agent. Psalm thirty-three, eleven says, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Jesus brought this down to a very personal, tender level in the Sermon on the Mount as he talked to his fear-prone disciples, telling them, don't worry about tomorrow. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about how you're going to pay bills. Don't worry about what's going to happen in this relationship or another. Don't worry about school that hasn't started yet. Don't worry about the answer that you're going to give at work tomorrow. Don't worry about a review coming up. Don't worry about how you're going to afford to live after retirement. Jesus said, the God who created and sustains all that is knows you. And he knows what you need. He knows you down to the very number of the hairs on your head. He clothes and takes care of the fields. He provides for the birds. And not one of them falls without his notice. Jesus is saying that his heavenly father is not some kind of um, deist divine who sort of spun the world like a top and then has stepped back and said, now you're on your own. But so many times we live practically like atheists, getting up in our own power, confronting issues in our own power, seeking provision in our own power, hoarding what has been given to us by God to try to provide for ourselves through our own power in the future. 
The Westminster Confession goes on, though, to acknowledge what we find throughout Scripture, that God primarily operates in His world through secondary causes. Listen to how they write it in section two. God is the first cause, and in relationship to Him, everything happens unchangeably and infallibly. However, by this same providence, he orders things to happen from secondary causes. As a result of these secondary causes, some things must inevitably happen. Others may or may not happen depending on the voluntary intentions of the agents involved. And some things do not have to happen but may depending on other conditions. Now, if, you're, if you are a student of Scripture and you, you took this statement, begin to work through it, you would have all kinds of stories and truths and examples from Scripture coming to mind. Alistair Begg puts it more simply this way. I feel it's more simply. You may feel it's not. He said, as God is working out his purpose according to the eternal counsel of his will, a God who is in absolutely no need of help from any quarter, a God who could have removed every secondary cause and made himself the primary cause of everything that takes place, that God has chosen in the mystery of his purposes to affect his eternal counsel by the employment of secondary causes, to govern a world in which some events and actions cause other events and actions. If you're curious where on earth we're going with this with Joseph, don't worry, I know. And we're going to get back into Genesis in just a minute. But some of these secondary causes are just written into creation, into the universe by God himself. The, the tides, the sun, the move, the, the rotation of the planets, sowing and reaping. This is why Genesis 8.22 says, as long as the earth endures... Don't miss this. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Why? Because in these secondary causes, God has ordered his universe to work in a certain way because he is, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, not a God of disorder, but of order. So for reaping to happen, sowing must happen. Sunshine and rain must take place for plants to grow. God has, in a sense, baked that into the system. But some secondary causes and most secondary causes come from the exercise of free will given by God to human beings. If I go into a bank and I rob the bank, I've got choices after that about what to do that will lead to different results. I can just sit right down and wait for the police to come. I can go on the run. I can take hostages. All of these things are the exercise of free human will that then lead to secondary causes. And many times, many times we see contingent events. In other words, this or that's going to happen in your life contingent upon 
you doing certain things. Uh, those of you that know the book of Acts, remember the shipwreck that Paul uh, and his shipmates were involved in in Acts 27. And as the storm is raging, Paul says a number of things. He says, first, we shouldn't have taken this trip anyway because I told you this was going to happen. Second, he says, God has revealed to me that we're going to make it through this. The ship's going to be lost, but we're going to be saved. Now, that was contingent upon several things. One, them staying in the boat in the middle of the storm. They had to ride out the storm. It was contingent upon them landing either close enough to walk to shore on an island or them holding onto planks of wood, right? So there's this, there's this mixture of divine and human engagement and activity in the purposes of God. And even though God works ordinarily through these secondary causes, God has chosen ordinarily to work through the means of human beings, of human actions and reactions. He's not limited to that. In section three of chapter five of the Westminster Confession, a very short section, just two sentences, the authors of the confession say this, God uses ordinary means to work out his providence day by day. But as he pleases, he may work without, beyond, or contrary to these means. And I just jotted down some, some references from scripture. This is what God does with Sarah that we looked at, who's barren and late in life. There's no human explanation for how she and Abraham could conceive other than God working beyond or contrary to the normal means or outside of, above his creation. Exodus 14, you'll remember, the sea parts. The sea just stands up. And the Israelites walk across on what? Anybody remember? On dry Land. You know how long it takes to get dry land around here after just one night of rain? They walk across on dry land. In Joshua 10, God causes the sun to stand still for three days. Science can't explain this, but God can do as he pleases. He created the sun. He created the orbit and the rotation of the planets, the tilt, the degrees, the speed. In 2 Kings chapter 6, God causes an axe head to float. Now, some of you can't float, but axe heads certainly can't float. But God can make one float if he desires to for his good and redemptive purposes. In John chapter two, the first miracle that Jesus does in his ministry, he turns water into wine. That's God working outside beyond, uh, in contradiction to the normal laws of the universe. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after days. Any of you ever done that? Any of you ever gone to a funeral and had the person in the casket hop out and go, I thought I'd stay a little while longer? Or maybe recreate out of the urn. Stand up and tell you that they wanted different songs and you knew that. Sung at their funeral. 
No, that doesn't happen. There's a great story of Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was a young child and his church would, would catechize the children, what we do here through repetition. So they would come in from Sunday school class and there was always a, a point in the sermon where the, the preacher would ask the children a question based on what they had learned that morning in Sunday school. And they were uh, to give an appropriate answer. And that morning they had studied John chapter 11 and the preacher asked the children, why did Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth? Everybody was quiet for a minute, and then young Martin Lloyd-Jones raised his hand. He said, in case everyone came forth. Some of you will have to think on that. But even at that age, Lloyd-Jones was acknowledging the power of Jesus, that when he commands the dead to rise, they're going to rise. So in Lloyd-Jones's little mind, Jesus had to be specific, lest everyone came back. All that we've been talking about here is the providence of God, is God's sovereign power applied to his redemptive purposes and glorious end for his creation of a new heaven and new earth. Let's go back now to Genesis chapter 45. There's a lot of emotion here. Joseph has done a lot of growing up. I mean, how many of you have lived long enough that just by a quick show of hands, you could say you'd be embarrassed to have to sit around and share some of the things you passionately said or did when you were younger? Anybody live that long? (laughs) Like all of us over 30, yeah. Yeah, I've always been passionate, right? So whatever I believed, I believed all the way. And some of it was stupid. Looking back, it was embarrassing and ridiculous. But I loved to debate. But yeah, Joseph has matured. Joseph hits rock bottom in prison. And this dream of exaltation that he had is in a sense put to death in his heart in a way that enables God then to bring it about. And what's unique here is that the sinful actions of his brothers are the human catalyst, the secondary cause that God uses to bring about the fulfillment of that dream of Joseph's exaltation. But God knew that Joseph had a little growing up to do first. J. Ireland Hessler said that God's love is more concerned with the development of a person's character than with the promotion of his or her comfort. Can I just be honest with you for just a minute as a pastor? This is such a startling, and Hassler's exactly right. This is absolutely faithful biblically. One of the great discouragements, and I think disillusions of many called to the pastorate today is the, the near requirement of comfort that God's people in the U.S. seem to have. That if, if anything about our life together as a church inconveniences us for any length of time, pushes us out of our comfort zone to any degree, we'll just go somewhere else and stay there until the same thing happens there. And then we'll go somewhere else. Always staying a spiritual infant. 
because God has chosen to mature his people over time through perseverance. So it's interesting, I was thinking uh, this week, looking at the numbers of summer groups, right? Eight weeks long, we miss one, we miss two, we've got work, we've got vacation, but to watch them just dwindle because we can't even keep up eight weeks of a once a week commitment for an hour or two. It's no wonder that there's such mass confusion and disunity in our churches all the time when anything hits our culture or our nation. We have failed to understand that God is far more concerned about the development of the character of Christ in us and the image of Christ than our comfort and our convenience. And as long as you continue to choose comfort and convenience, as long as I choose, and to the degree that I choose, comfort and convenience over faithfulness and devotion to Christ, I will stay right where I am spiritually or go backwards. That's simply how it works. Verse 45, or I'm sorry, chapter 45. Uh, Joseph has already met his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Years and years and years have passed. Joseph is in another culture. He's dressed differently. He looks differently. Pick it back up with verse three. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? Now you can imagine the physiological response that happens in the body. Some of you know this well. If you've been in um, situations of intense danger and fear, you know that there's a chemical response in your body. And if you've got a profession where you deal with that, you learn to recognize that, to handle it mentally and move on. But you know his brother standing here before the most powerful man in the most powerful empire, kingdom, nation on earth at that time says, guess what, boys? I'm the brother you sold into slavery. They can't say a word. And then Joseph clarifies in verse four, come close to me. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery, just in case they'd forgotten. I don't think there'd probably been a day go by that they hadn't thought about what they had done. This is sort of how sin works in our lives. I've compared it, you've heard me compare it before to a McDonald's meal. It always seems better on the front end than the back end. Seems like it's going to be enjoyable and gratifying. And then once it's done, you realize what an utter mistake you've made. Verse five, he says, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Now, there's the secondary cause in terms of God's providence, how God moves and works in the world. This is part of how you come to understand uh, to the degree that we can, humanly speaking, the mysterious relationship between the freedom that God's given us as human beings, which is real and true, and the sovereignty of God, the umbrella under which that freedom exists. He says, don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. They absolutely did that. In their sin and their vindictiveness and their hatred of Joseph, they did that. He said, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Joseph has come to understand there aren't just secondary causes in the world, but there is a primary agent at work. And he said, ultimately, you could not have done a thing 
that my God did not permit. And so your sin against me, I'm seeing, has turned out for the good. He tells them more about the famine. And then in verse 8 he says, So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, did they sell him into slavery? Absolutely. But Joseph is saying, behind your sinful actions, working in and through your hard-heartedness and your attempt to wound me and to destroy me was the mercy and goodness of God. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. See, Joseph is talking about his exaltation here in a very different tone than if you go back and read about his, uh, his explanation of his dream to his brothers. Now, everyone is bowing down to Joseph. Not just his brothers, but everyone in the land of Egypt and anyone who comes looking for the food and the resources that Egypt had. But Joseph knows it is God that's put him where he is. It hasn't been his own work. Now, I have to tell you that submitting to this truth, submitting to the truth of, of God's sovereignty and human uh, free will working together of primary and secondary causes in the providence of God is the only way to respond to it. Simply trying to get around it or get at it intellectually is a weight that you can't handle and I can't handle. God works this way because he's God and because he's determined to work this way. And there's a mystery there that just simply is going to be there. Let me give you just a, a couple of observations about this. The first is this, that God's sovereignty over sin, God's sovereignty over sin does not change the nature of sin itself. Just because Joseph says, God sent me ahead of you, God ultimately sent me here and not you, doesn't change the fact that the actions of his brothers was sinful, was an abomination before the Lord. If you turn over a few pages, if you've got your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. I'm going to read verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? Um, so a little time has passed. Their father has passed away. And now they're wondering, was Joseph really just playing a game until dad died and now he's going to come after us? What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When, your, when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. His dreams, specifically with his brothers, had come literally true at this point. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? 
What Joseph was saying is, am I the one who is going to cast ultimate judgment on your life? That's not for me to do. Verse 20, you intended to harm me. Joseph's very realistic and honest about this. What you did was wrong. It was sin. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Sin is sin is sin. It is always sin. Chemo is still poison, even if when used in certain treatments, it helps you become whole. It is still poison. Second observation, God's providence does not provide God's providence, his ability and his desire and his intent to work all things, including human sin and evil, together for his good and glorious redemptive purposes does not provide permission for us to violate God's revealed will. In other words, we can't say, well, it's God's will that I do X and Y when Scripture has clearly revealed it not to be. No matter how we feel about a situation, no matter how much we might want to tilt someone's journey this direction or that direction, the providence of God, the doctrine of God's providence gives us no permission to violate what he's revealed in Scripture. And finally, God's use of sin, God's use of sin for his good purposes does not make him the author of sin. Very important that you understand this. James 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 13 and following says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Why? Because Scripture makes clear that God is absolutely good, absolutely loving, and absolutely just. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. God's use of sin does not make him the author of nor responsible for sin. George Lawson, a Scottish um, minister of the late 18th and early 19th century, said, God not only permits sin, but he makes use of it. No sinner can do any evil that God has not intended to use for the advancement of his own glory. Listen to how Peter puts this in Acts chapter 2. In what is the first Christian sermon in response to the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now look at verse 23. This man, that is Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, 
with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter is in a sense saying, the joke's on you and it's a serious one. Because your trial and execution of Jesus was simply the accomplishing of the redemptive will of God. God, as the primary agent of all that happens in the world, working through the secondary agents and causes, even the sinful and evil actions of human beings, even the most sinful and evil actions that human beings have ever done, the very crucifixion of the Son of God himself who came to bring life to all who would have it. Is this God, is the God of providence who absolutely has not lost control of his world, but is even now this morning directing it specifically including the rise and fall of nations and leaders and the course of individual lives toward its redemptive and glorious end. Is the God of that kind of power and providence safe? No, he's not, but he's good. He's good. One of the reasons I think we generally in the church across our land see so little energy in worship so little seriousness in discipleship is we've lost fact to the sight that God is not safe he's holy and just and without him we are lost and hopeless is he safe nobody's good just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And as I finish praying, our offering ushers will pass the buckets. We'll receive offering this morning as well as your connection cards if you're ready to drop those in. If not, you can save them, finish filling them out and drop them in the boxes on the walls. But I hope this morning, whatever you're walking through, whatever questions and doubts and fears you have, whatever anxiety seeks to, to grip you and to hold you, you'll lift up and place before this God who isn't safe, but oh, so good. So generous and gracious to his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we prepare to give back this morning, a mere drop of what you have so generously given to us in and through your Son, Father, as well as through the common grace of our health and our jobs, our abilities. God, I pray that you will stir in hearts this morning, Lord, that when we stand to sing and respond, Lord, before we go to receive communion, we would confess sin, God, we would recommit ourselves to following you closely, to choosing faithfulness and discipline and devotion 
grace-driven effort, God, over convenience and comfort. And Lord, we would acknowledge, God, that in your righteousness and holiness and justice, you aren't safe. But God, you are indeed good. Your love is everlasting from generation to generation. And it's by your grace and only by your grace, by this this unmerited favor of yours poured out on those whose faith is in Christ that we're not only saved from the coming judgment, God, but we're restored and transformed. God, bless those who are about to give. Bless those who's given through the week. Father, may it be through your power enough to do the ministry and mission that you've called us to as a church. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.